Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Get a Verizon Business Unlimited plan from the network businesses rely on. Hey, Monica, with 5G ultra-wideband in many more cities, you get up to 10 times the speed at no extra cost. Hello, downloads in no time. Plus, unlimited premium data and hotspot data to keep the signal flowing and your teams going. Come in or book an appointment with a Verizon business expert to find the right plan for your team. 5G ultra-wideband available in over 1,700 cities with Business Unlimited Pro 2.0 smartphone plan. Speed comparison is to median Verizon 4G LTE speeds. Download speeds may vary depending upon network and coverage conditions and content optimization for 5G ultra-wideband. Welcome to the Benzinga Cannabis Hour. How is everybody doing? I am Tony Noto. With me is my faithful and amazing co-host, Elliot Lane. How are you, Mr. Lane? I am doing well. At first, I thought you were going to say sidekick, and I just no, thought a scrappy do. Never... I was like, I'm not a scrappy do. Like, I, don't, no, I mean, no, I'm no. fine with scrappy. But <laughs> I would never do that to you. In fact, right before we hit record and we went live, we were talking about how much of a leading man you are. Oh, and, look at you with that hair. Yeah, no, no, no. But I'm, I'm, <laughs> I could tell you're taller. You have the uh, the Paul Newman blue eyes. You play Ooh, instruments. You hit. You portrayed uh, Johnny Cash in a bunch of shows. You were on the road performing in in a past life. That's I can relate. <laughs> past life. Man. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know I'm sure a lot of people can relate. The, I have a very strong love of theater. My dad was in music. My my older brother has a master's in acting. Uh, my oldest brother is a luthier and makes and fixes and uh, sells string instruments in Louisville, awesome. Kentucky. So yeah, we have a, we have deep roots in music. But how I landed in financial media is probably a story for another day. But yeah. uh, essentially, I met Jason at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> really? You know, with the Benzinga crew, I convinced Patrick, who everybody knows is my older brother, uh, yeah. to bring the crew in, talk to Jason for a while, talk to the team. Uh, and, you know, I guess it's it's history from there. No, it's, it's a gig, man. <laughs> everybody, all the world's a stage, remember? Somebody very smart Amen. said that. I love it. But I've been Benzinga for two and a half years now. And it's 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 been a bit. Yeah, you know? you're, so you're the leading man like- here. And uh, I am your sidekick. Let's be honest. Hey, you know, I nonsense. Did, I uh, I did a few plays here in New York um, on the producing end, which is really tough, and I don't recommend it to anybody. But uh, to be use on your stage, own money in the show. Yeah, I did not follow <laughs> that rule. No, I, I did the fundraising. I, I wasn't that stupid, but um, I did. Uh, I did uh, on on stage is always better, and behind the mic oh, yeah. is always better. So how's that for a transition? We're hey, behind the mic today. Amen. I got the laptop propped up on my Catan board game to give me a little bit of height. I got my Donald <laughs> Duck mug ready to go. He's about as happy as I am right now. Uh, oh, oh well, I hope that's not the case. Nah, uh, but you know, another part of our transition though, we have a very interesting show and the first person is gonna, I think uh, has a little bit of producing in her bones as well on multiple fronts. She also has a show uh, that we can chat a little bit about, but I think she has some strong skills at getting people visibility, potentially some capital. Uh, I, I mean, she's she's an absolute champion uh, in PR and IR in this space. And I want to meet her. Let's bring her on. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Tony, you're, you're, the, the Rapunzel swoop is, is just getting me today. You look great, man. This is the COVID uh, do. Talk about Rapunzel soup. She got long hair. Uh, Rosie's here, you know. Is she there? Uh, I may have not seen her. Rosie, can you? Oh, there she is. Sorry, I just had to scroll over. I've become proficient oh. in Zoom over the past couple of months somehow. Got my video on. So yeah. great to be here, guys. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, you, oh, we are thrilled. Yeah, and you win the background uh, game right now. That's a pretty cool piece of art behind you. Yeah. What is that? I'm actually in our office today by myself, but this is oh. our conference room. So we uh, we did a little decorating here. And since we're still paying rent, I come in a couple of days a week. Okay, cool. <laughs> Just you know, love it. In the background, like my earlier morning calls, you know, my, I'm, at, my, I'm made bed. This is the background today, the office. How funny. Yeah, Absolutely. we have to, we have that real estate to, to you know, make use of, right? That's we got to right. send people to the office. That's right. <laughs> So Rosie, we were just chatting about uh, producing uh, and and yeah. you know and getting visibility for clients. I think that is a is a pretty interesting transition into what you do. Uh, you know, you are an absolute. Uh, I don't know how to nicely say the word monster or beast, but like you are everything in this space, and I'm so excited to hear from you. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about who you are, even though I'm sure they probably know. Um, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me today. You know, Benzinga is an integral part of our daily life at our agency. Uh, I'm Rosie Maddio. I'm founder of Maddio Communications. We're leading strategic communications agency focused on the cannabis space. Uh, we've been doing this for over six years now, um, and we do public relations, investor relations, influencer relations, social media, content, and SEO for the cannabis space. We represent, um, to date, 55 cannabis companies. Um, and do that broad range of services, um, you know, across the industry. We work with um, some of the bigger names like uh, Terrasend and Curaleaf and Candescent and Pop and Barkley um, and become real experts uh, in cannabis communications. 55 companies. Wow. That's incredible. And that's just cannabis. You have other verticals too, right? Yeah, so we have 55 cannabis companies. We represent a few um, other mainstream companies. We work with a company called Ipsy. They're a subscription beauty box. So like... Um, uh, they are actually a close to billion dollar a year business. Um, and the reason why we keep them on board, because you know we're so focused in, in cannabis is that we've grown so rapidly because we've always taken this mainstream approach, right? So while we're, we're highly represented at Benzinga and MJ Biz and all of the great trades that really support the industry, we always took this mainstream approach, pitching your Times, Fast Company, Mashable, and keeping a few marquee clients like an Ipsy really keeps us connected to what's happening in popular culture, mainstream media. So we feel that integration of having a few non-cannabis clients to help support the cannabis business as well. Yeah. Is, is it like a bigger is better sort of game in PR, like uh, keeping those marquee names because otherwise you run the risk of being what, too niche or too under the radar? Like walk us through why, what the, the strategy behind that. That's exactly right. So okay. uh, we've had a lot of learnings over the past six years. And, you know, while we are very proud to be so cannabis focused. Sometimes there's a little perception like, well, they only know cannabis. So like, and you know, we know where the puck is going. Companies want to be mainstream. And, and that, like I said, that's why we've grown so rapidly. We've always been pitching New York Times. And when you are so cannabis specific, some people say, well, I'd rather go to a big mainstream agency who gets mainstream media. So I can point, hey, we work with this food company, that beauty company, we're doing amazing work for them. So we can bring that in to the cannabis fold. And, and that's been our approach. Yeah. In can I ask in what part of the process did you realize that when you first got into communications, were you, uh, did you start with those companies and going after those types of mainstream companies or was it cannabis and realizing you needed to, to stretch out a little bit further? Right. So I've had my own agency um, since 2004, so 16 years. Um, and my background was in mainstream PR. Specialty food and technology was really, um, you know, my, my expertise. And in 2014, I had just moved out to Seattle, Washington, which had just gone adult use. And I was approached to do the launch of a crowdfunding campaign for a cookbook because I had food and tech background. And it was a cannabis cookbook. And Interesting. I knew nothing about the cannabis industry, it had not really been part of my life since I was in college. I was living in states that had not, did not really have legal programs and it wasn't part of the East Coast vernacular. So when I took on this project, I was like, well, where would I pitch a cookbook? Even though it was cannabis, I went to the New York Times food editor and I went to the Fast Company uh, food editors and I said, this is a really cool new cookbook. I bet you've never seen one of these before. And they all clamored to write the story. So when that happened and I'd all these, I'd always been very good at my job. I'd never been where the, I was 
Fast Company and the New York Times and Mash were fighting over an exclusive. I'm like, there's something here. Right. I can bring my mainstream background to this new industry. Fast forward six years later, 55 clients, and I think we're arguably the largest cannabis marketing services firm in the space. Wow. I just have to ask, was there pot pasta in the cannabis cookbook? Oh, it was gorgeous. There was pot pasta. There was like um, herb butter on the uh, for the steak. It, it, it was beautifully done. It was by the Stoner's Cookbook guys who are now herb. And they had celebrity chefs from like Top Chef. Um, and it was beautiful. And I was very proud to pitch it. And that was just the beginning of it all. Amazing. That's funny. That was a cool story. That was a really good throwback to like three months ago. Three our months conversation ago. I, I believe our, our, our first episode that Ellie and I, Elliot and I uh, hosted, we talked about cannabis pasta. And I, I'm a yeah. fan of alliteration. So pot pasta was just fun to say. And I've never tried it. And as an Italian, I feel like I should. Yeah, you got, you got to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk about who was your first or maybe longest standing cannabis client uh, that's helped you build this side, if you will? So th that is part of the story. So I, like I said, I just moved out to Seattle, Washington for my husband's job, just fortuitous. Mm -hmm. We moved out there and I, I had this tech background and there were these cannabis tech meetups. So I'm like, once like I got this little bug, I was like, let's see what's happening here. So I started going to this cannabis tech meetup and I met these three lovely guys who had just exited their first cannabis startup, a startup called Leafly. And they were starting a new company called Headset. So Scott, Scott, Scott Brian Wanslich and Scott Vickers had just exited Leafly to privateer and they had a new tech company. And I met them at one of these events. Actually, while I speak very often on panels and you know the public speak now, back then I was a little more timid. I know it's hard to believe. And I was supposed to speak at this event because I had like a small tech Canvas client and I didn't want to do it. And I was like, and they were like, well, Cy might want to do it. And Cy stood in for me and okay. he really saved the day. Um, but we, we hit it off. I met with them in like their little office um, in, um, you know, I, I, it was actually a houseboat was their office. And I met them. And well, you really think they were off showing off much or no? What? I <laughs> think they were showing off much or no at the houseboat? You no, know, it sounds a lot more glamorous than it was. We okay. talk about this a lot. Now they have these big offices and I don't know, 30, 40 people working for them was just us hanging on a, a, on a dock. Okay. It smelled like dead fish, you know? But <laughs> no, we really hit it off and they became my first like agency record client and we are still with them to today. Um, and, you know, they were rock stars in their own right and they took a bet on me and I took a bet on them and it led to a lot of things. So I started traveling with Cy when he'd speak on panels and I started networking and I, I met other people and it just became word of mouth, but they've been with us for six years and we've had a great partnership and, and they really got me started. Amazing. So looking at the different, uh, you know, I guess jumping into to now, you know, jumping into today and how you work with your clients. Uh, can you talk about maybe the different tactics you take and it, I, it could be the same, you know, for a headset and a leaf link and a cure leaf, or is there different approaches to the different types of companies you work with? Yeah, so there are a few things that just remain like uh, core pillars to how we you know, do our job. So one of them is, and it happens to be because Headset is a data company, but we always lead with data, right? Like you guys know as a media outlet, us, me going to and say, our company's got the best new canvas beverage, like, good for us, like, why do you care, right? right? But if I can back it up and say, hey, grapefruit flavors are like the hottest flavor of the year and the data backs it up and it's grown X, Y, and Z exponentially, A, I can get the, you know, the press for a headset with the data, but I can also get a story placed for the beverage because I'm showing like a big trend that's happened in the space. So we always leave with data. Um, we also just try, a lot of the reasons, like I said, we keep Ipsy or whatever it is, is really understanding what is happening in the news cycle. And I know you guys don't like the term like news jacking. We do that. We really try to see what are media talking about? What are the big conversations that are happening in politics, culture regulation, and where can our clients fit in there? So not trying to reinvent the wheel, but being relevant is one thing right. we do. Um, and then also just really understanding what a media outlet is looking for and what a reporter is looking for. Just, I always say this to my team and I say to everybody I meet, just because somebody's covering cannabis doesn't mean they should write your story, right? It right. has to be the right fit. So we believe in quality over quantity as relates to our pitching. And we do, if, if you get one great person to write one great story, it's much better served than you doing a blast pitch to hundred editors and hoping and praying, you know, spray and pray that someone's gonna write your story. It just doesn't work that way. And we think those are disciplines that have helped us get to where we are. That's, that's and, interesting. And it, it is yeah. different, actually, as it relates to like 
there's different regions. So depending on where the client is, you know, we do employ a little bit of a, a different tactic, but those are really our core tenets. Yeah, I mean, you sort of cracked the code in a way because a lot of um, folks in your in your industry wrestle with how, how do we get the attention of folks on our end, and it's very very difficult because we get hounded with pitch after pitch from firm after firm. How do you grab a journalist's attention? And you kind of laid the groundwork there, like you guys have like you know quality over quantity. Because eventually, sometimes, you know, dare I say, and I know offense to the you and other folks like you, but like our eyes roll over when we see the person pitching just over and over and over again, you know, shallow stories. Like, so if so, tying something to data and an interesting entrepreneur's backstory, to me, that's like a, a perfect marriage for like, you know, what makes for an, an engaging piece. And we want to cover the story more. Coming from yeah, one of our editors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure we do blast you a lot. I'm sure we do pitch you guys a lot. You guys cover really very widely and we appreciate it. Yeah, I, um, I, I just got an email from your co colleague, Alexis. Oh, she's new. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> Welcome. Tell, tell her I'm sorry I didn't write back yet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it, it is challenging. But I think it also is the relationship building, right? right? So, yes, we are pitching you guys a lot. We are. But I think what's really how we started, and this is also a tip I always give, is I, I think you'll feel as somebody other end, if you come to us and be like, I really need a source for something, whether it's a, we have a client that fits that mold or not, we will help you out, right? Because mm -hmm. it's all about relationship building, right? It's all about that you can trust that when you come to Matteo, we're gonna find you the right person. So I think a lot of it is why do you open our emails and I and hope you'll continue to because I, I hope we serve, you know, quality stories and we are very, we will tell a client like this is too self-serving. We can't go out with this. It's going right. to ruin the relationship with the editor will not serve you well going down, you know, in the future. So we try to be judicious in what we pitch. We have a lot of clients we pitch a lot, but really it's the relationship and really understanding what the reporter's needs are. And that's the only way that it'll work. So being so on top of, you know, obviously topical discussions, um, you, what are you seeing right now? I mean, there's so many topics that I'm sure your, your clients are, are looking at, whether it's a beverage or, or legislation or, you know, regulation. Uh, what are some of the topics that you find yourself pitching right now? I mean, right now we're in, in a very interesting year, obviously. Like there's only a couple topics that we can actually cover, right? Because it's just been a wild year, but it's been the bright spot, right? So uh, 2020 has been, while last year might've been uh, maybe more about pitching the grapefruit beverage, which we're still doing now, you know, COVID hit, we were deemed an essential business, right? So what did that mean? This is, you know, just like your, your CVS, your grocery store, cannabis, is as relevant as that. So there was obviously a lot of pitching this year around the implications of COVID and cannabis and cannabis and COVID and really like on so many levels, obviously the economic benefit of having these stores open, you know, the need states of people who are stressed out, tired, not feeling great, cannabis, um, you know, being part of their lives and how could cannabis companies help? I know you guys got the, you know, ever popular hand sanitizer pitches, right? The cannabis yeah. companies that were making hand sanitizer. But like I said earlier, we got to work with what's happening, right? Yeah. And COVID was all, it still is all over the news. And so that became obviously a big topic of conversation. You know, we are just, you know, I was listening in on your conversation before, like the these blowout quarters that these biggest MSOs are having, terrorists and Curaleaf, GTI, like what exuberance there is. So how can we be putting out those CEOs as thought leaders um, and talking about, you know, the shift in market. We came into 2020, and even when we were at the Benzinga conference in February, one of the last events we all traveled to, there was still a lot of this, like, doomsday of, like, what was happening in the markets and, like, the compression of the market. But now it, it feels very different at the second half of the year, right? We are really yeah. excited about what's happening. There is money flowing into space. These companies are promising, are delivering on the promises. So, you know, talking about that and obviously the election, right? Like, um, you know, what what will happen? The predictions for 21. Will Biden Harris, you know, you know, stay true to their promises, but they're talking about in the campaign. Uh, a lot of the social equity issues, you know, New Jersey on Monday is gonna put out some of their regulations and rules and will social equity be part of that? So those are all hot topics, election, social equity, COVID, um, and obviously, you know, the opening of the markets again. Yeah. Well, I would love to know a little bit about your approach to clients that have a story to tell but maybe they don't quite know what that story is. And that might sound weird, but I, I guess my question is like, a lot of these narratives could you know, run the risk of sounding the same, like all those companies, wonderful earnings reports that are coming our way, uh, what makes them unique? 
you know, what makes Cureleaf different from a, a Cresco and a GTI, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, there's a saying like a, uh, a good reporter doesn't find great stories, a good reporter makes them great. But right. I think that also goes for, you know, folks on your end, because you're, you're hearing that pitch before we do, unless we happen to find it and then reach out to you guys, that happens too. But when you're in the room with them, what's sort of like your approach to finding that great backstory that you can sort of angle and like, hey, this isn't just a company that's doing really well. Here's the the CEO and why he or she is unique. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's really obviously like what people, you know, pay us for to under yeah. to help them distill their story into something that's newsworthy. Right. So and it really begins with our onboarding process. We, we and you said a lot of the buzzwords that we talk about. The first question we ask in our onboarding process is what is your origin story? Right. Yeah. Like, how did like you may be the biggest MSO, but like what was day one like? What was that story? And what was the inspiration? And what team have you assembled to execute? Right. And we find those stories in, you know, in, in like sometimes it's like a bartender, right? And when you hear like why he came to this company and that, and when you hear about his story and how he came to the company, it helps you tell the story about what company culture looks like, what their benefits look like, yeah. why would they choose to work at one company over another? When you hear these like small personal stories, you can really understand what a brand is about, what a company is about. So our job is to really find those, they're, they're tiny bite, they're bite size. And those are the things that you really can turn to a story. It's never like, we're the best company. Like you should be the best company, but yeah. like that is not a story. And I think that's where we become effort, experts in is finding those unique stories. I'll, I'll talk about Terrasen. So their CEO came from Fresh Direct, one of the most, um, you know, uh, logistics, you know, delivering ice cream across New York City during rush hour, not having it melt. Like that's a problem solver, right? Yeah, so yeah. how can he bring this working in a highly regulated industry, which is you know grocery in New York City? he's probably apt you know to run a cannabis company so we can draw those parallels to what these people's backstories are their history that's a great story so that's what we really try to do in our in our in our finding sessions with our clients yeah fantastic rosie we have to wrap up unfortunately but i think this is the first of many conversations i hope yeah, um thank you I, for having it, me this was really fun i was of nervous course. actually <laughs> thanks guys Rosie, this is actually my first conversation with you, and I was nervous too. So I think we did okay. Um, wait, could, Good job, team. Yeah. Could you tell our audience real quick how they can find you? I think you have a podcast too that they can tune into as well. Uh, just tell them a little bit about uh, where they can go. Yeah, so we, we do have a podcast we launched called Pots of Popular, and it looks about the intersection of mainstream and cannabis. Um, and you can, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Anybody who's watching here or knows, so you can find me on LinkedIn, you know, at Rosie Matteo, um, and then Rosie at Matteo.com is my email, and I read and I answer every email. You'd be surprised. Um, awesome. but it was, thank you so much for having me. And I'll oh, it was a pleasure. Hour. Thank you for it joining us. It was a pleasure. Us. Thanks, okay. Rosie. You be well. Oh, Take care, fun. Rosie. Um, that was fun. Uh, so if you, so for everybody that is, you know, tuning in, you know, during that, uh, I don't even know if we said this before that, so nobody missed out on anything. Uh, but we are talking to people in this space that have experience in multiple different uh, industries, right? So Rosie, obviously she takes, you know, knowledge from the mainstream and is implementing that into cannabis. You know, and, you know, I think that goes to a lot of what we talk about on the operational side as well for growers. You know, what, what is the difference between a CPG exec veteran versus somebody who came up as a grower uh, within the industry, you know? Yeah. So, and that's where you that. see, that's where you see the real innovations come along where somebody has an expertise in this other area and then they're coming to the cannabis space. And that's, that's how the industry is going to evolve. Amen. You know, they're, they're going to bring in all those uh, little skills that they learned, those lessons they learned over the years, and they're going to bring it to the uh, to their CBD. Yeah, absolutely. And Rosie is an absolute powerhouse. I mean, if yeah. you couldn't tell from that interview, she works with uh, some giants in this industry. So if you don't know her, I would recommend getting familiar with Rosie and what they do over there. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> Medio Communications. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep moving. We have a uh, duo have, lined up next, don't we? Yes, we do have a duo. Uh, we have a longtime supporter, uh, friends of Benzinga, uh, MGO. We have a couple uh, representatives from MGO joining us as they come over. Um, they do a ton in the space. Um, Scott, just make sure you get your mutant yeah, video going. 
There you go. How's it going, sir? Good to see you Not again. Bad. Sorry, guys. I just got reconnected, so I was on the hold pattern, so it took me a while to uh, click on the link. I, I do have one comment slash criticism. You're taking, you're putting a couple accountants after Rosie. I mean, is this counter programming? <laughs> Honestly, she got to her email first, man. No, no, she don't tell Laura I said that. No, we're journalists. Bad. We always lead with the best. And oh, then that hurts. Then that hurts. <laughs> Scott, Scott, I don't endorse him. I know what my Q rating is and it's not that high. Oh, nonsense. We're going to make it high today. Um, right. Scott, so I don't know if Matt's joining us or not, but let's dive right in. Uh, let's hope that he does. That. Yeah, I think we really want to hear uh, about this field guide. So, but first of all, can you please uh, just give our audience a bit about MGO, uh, what the company does and is? And to quote Rosie, give you our, our origin story as it were. Yes, please. So uh, yeah, we got into the space about six years ago. Uh, MGO, first of all, is a, a national public accounting consulting firm. We work in a lot of different industries. We got into cannabis, as I said, about six years ago. Uh, and we work, you know, I don't wanna make Rosie look bad because in everything else she's making us look bad probably, but she's got 55, we've got several hundred clients we've worked with. So I, we, you know, if nothing else, that's the only thing I've got over her probably. Um, so, right. we, and, but like her, we've worked with, you know, wide, a wide range of companies, everything from the smaller startups, to the big MSOs, took a lot of them public, continue to work with them today. And so it's been just our pleasure to be associated with the industry as it's grown. And it's just, uh, it's been a fascinating ride. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I know Tony's gonna have a plethora of questions on this subject, because I got the pleasure of interviewing you about this uh, in October, you know, when the field guide actually first came out. Uh, that was incredibly interesting and I think unique. And I'd love to hear after we get into a little, about, little bit about what the field guide is, how it's been received. Um, but could you tell our audience a little bit about uh, what it is we're discussing today? Yeah, no, absolutely. We, you know, as a firm, uh, look, we're, we're a for-profit entity. We're, we're here to make money and to help serve the industry, but also for our own selfish purposes. We want to do so and be able to continue our existence by turning a profit. But one of the ways that we try and give back to the industry is through putting content out there uh, to anybody who wants to access it that we think addresses issues of concerns and need for the industry. So in the past, uh, we put out things like guides to going public, uh, you know, regular recurring content pieces on tax, legislative, regulatory compliance issues. So one of the more recent guides we put out is what we're calling our M&A field guide. And the concept behind it was when you look at where the industry is from an from a evolutionary or life cycle perspective, you know, we all, many of us went through a big wave, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, mm -hmm. a lot of the initial go public boom. That was kind of, some people call it the green rush. It was definitely a land grab. There was a, a, a driver behind it, a concept. That concept has certainly evolved and, and we're seeing kind of a second wave of m and A. A lot of it's being driven by consolidation. A lot of it's being driven by, I'll say a restructuring of uh, investment thesis. And you're seeing maybe a broader range of investment thesis by different companies play out. So we thought it was a very opportune time for us to put this information out there. It covers all sorts of things that are relevant to the M&A process, both from a buyer's perspective and a seller's perspective. So it's designed to be of interest, whether you're a single small scale artisanal grower who wants to uh, liquidate or your uh, regional MSO that maybe wants to develop a national footprint. So we're trying to have something of value in the guide for everybody. And yeah. I'll be remiss, it looks like uh, Matt's joined us now. So Matt's yes. here. There he is. Sorry, I think we were having a bit of Zoom issues, which I mean, I feel like it's just, that's just a common phrase nowadays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that just is what it is. But so it is, I mean, there, I actually read the guide uh, and I found it incredibly interesting, you know, even just as a person that works for a financial media outlet. Uh, I learned a lot, you know, about the issues over the past two years of the cannabis industry and really how as a younger company and an older company, uh, you can respond to those in an organized fashion. Uh, so, you know, in, in looking at uh, really diving into what we're talking about, can you go into a, a few of the sections that it covers? Yeah, so it's uh, multiple chapters. I think there's 10 in total, if I remember correctly. And it's dealing with everything from, you know, getting your, your books and records in order for some of the more basic documentation-driven type issues to developing a strategy of m and to uh, developing a you know, how to maximize pre and post implementation issues. So it touches on a lot of things. And, and if I can, I'll maybe make a little segue uh, into Matt's area of expertise, because one of the things we do talk about in there are the tax consequences, both from a buyer and seller's perspective. And so, you know, Matt is uh, one of our tax partners in our cannabis group, technically excellent, 
great communicator. He's done a wonderful job, you know, doing some unique structuring for our clients. And so Matt, I'll, I'll throw it to you. And maybe if you want to comment a little bit on some of the issues a guy talks about from a tax perspective. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. So a couple of things that come up, especially in terms of various exposures is the due diligence process. One item there is definitely the 280E. And so that's something we always have to look at because that's one of the primary exposures. Another item that always comes up is uh, the indirect tax. So excise taxes and sales and use tax and looking at that um, angle and whether that's uh, being handled appropriately because a lot of times there's particular errors, especially in prior years and how that's been handled and looking at the historical period. And then in terms of structuring, there's a lot that can be done in terms of whether there's potentially a tax-free component, whether um, the entity needs to be taken as a whole or whether it can be an asset sale, whether there's a potential for stepping up the basis in assets and you know various ways to optimize for 280E uh, through structuring, through you know review of cost goods sold and methodologies and various other elements. Yeah, it's one of the things I would say, I mean, for those in the industry, tax has always been a critical driver primarily of 280E, I think as people get deeper in the industry, they understand that tax issues in the industry are more than just 280E because that's kind of been the mantra or all consuming you know, motto for many years. But you know, all the normal structuring issues we see um, for a, a non-cannabis industry M&A transaction exist in, in cannabis as well. Uh, and layer on top of that, the complexity of 280E, you know, the various ex excise and cultivation sales tax issues. And it's not uncommon for deals to either get delayed repriced or in, unfortunately, not too uncommon instance, totally canceled uh, around these tax issues where buyer and seller just cannot see the tax exposure the same way. You say complexity. That's a, I feel like that's the word of the day when it comes to 280E. You also say good communicator. I mean, good, goodness, you have to be a good communicator to really, you know, convey what's needed to, I think, take advantage of the opportunities here. But uh, you know, looking at some of the pitfalls from the buyer side, let's start with the buyer. Uh, you know, I guess, Matt, this would be a question for you in terms of how you can structure or what needs to be taken into consideration when structuring uh, a deal from the buyer side. So one of the things that factors in is the consideration. You know, there's a lot of deals where um, there has to be a lot more stock than cash. And so that will factor in whether we can do tax-free elements. If it's more cash, we look at things such as deferral. There's also um, certain items in terms of, you know, what licenses are being moved, you know, whether they have significant um, other assets such as uh, real property or intellectual property. And, you know, just basically how clean is it in terms of supply chain and looking through that process. So there's a number of different elements that can be optimized there. And then, as I had mentioned, in terms of the 280E, that's always an element that factors into each of those levels. License, license aspect is something that's always interested me uh, in regards to the different states and the different markets that- That's what I was gonna see, ask, yeah. Yeah, we see acquisitions coming in. I, you know, I feel like there's, there's gotta be a different market cap, right? For each individual license. So yep. how do you measure? I mean, or, I mean, I'm sure you can measure it. I just said there's a market cap to it, but you know, there, it's gotta be crazy kind of keeping up with the different levels of these licenses between states and the values that come with it, right? Yeah, it's always an interesting component. A lot of times we're working with the attorneys uh, specific to what the regulatory uh, restrictions are and also factoring the valuation. At least from the tax element where it ends up uh, showing up is whether the entity has to go with it. Because a lot of times you can't do, say, an asset transaction because of the fact that it creates regulatory hurdles. And so you end up having to do these transactions where the entity is either purchased as a whole or some sort of merger transaction. So that's typically where that comes in. Uh, the other item is, you know, the value of the license, and that's typically negotiated, um, you know, when they're working through the purchase price. Well, I'll highlight here for those of your listeners, there's two issues from a tax perspective. You know, Matt's absolutely correct. You do see that negotiation between buyer and seller and an agreement reached on how they're going to assign certain values, and that's done to meet certain tax criteria or make it a little smoother. Uh, but then when that same buyer and seller uh, particularly on the buyer side or looking at maybe other reporting obligations if it's a public company or a private company that's putting its numbers out then you have separate valuation issues and that's when you'd you know more most classically get a separate uh, independent valuation you know maybe of an individual transactions and the related assets and again that's one of the many things that we do for clients and non-clients alike 
So the big question for me is what's going to happen in 2021? I don't know how comprehensive the guide is looking forward to 2021 trends, but M&A tanked in 2020 uh, record lows. Uh, When you guys compile this information, did that, did a COVID year sort of affect how you put the guide together and does it sort of influence what you guys will um, write for the next gap? Yeah, I think it does. Um, and I think I think of 2020 as the, the tale of two different halves, almost two different years. The first half of the year, even without COVID, and, and you really started to see this in the second half of 19, but you definitely slow down in transactions. Transactions were getting held up of, for a variety of reasons, including pricing, regulatory risk, et cetera. So I would say the first half of 2020 was was very quiet, particularly as it came to new deal making. You saw some deals getting done that had been in the hopper for quite a while and they had finally worked their way to conclusion. Uh, but in terms of new deals, you just weren't seeing a lot, you know, partly valuations were down. And then COVID, had, we had clients that were, you know, set to do deals and subject to site and, and facility inspections. Couldn't do it, you know, around that time. And then that was enough to put the, along with the uncertainty from COVID, just flip the switch and the, the deal died. Uh, so you definitely saw some deals collapse because of COVID solely. Uh, but then as we got kind of, I would say, midsummer, uh, July for us, and it's anecdotal, we started to see an uptick in interest in entities looking to do deals. And so uh, and around the same time, quite frankly, is when we made the decision to start drafting the guide. It was kind of midsummer um, mm-hmm. was because we felt we were at an inflection point. And I wouldn't say we're necessarily coming you know, V-shaped, but we definitely felt like a, we're coming off the bottom, whether it be valuations or level of M&A activity. And then I think as you know, we transitioned into the state elections in particular, maybe less than at the federal level, you can see the impact. Uh, I think, you know, Rosie commented on your last session um, that, you know, there's a level of confidence, there's a, a wind uh, at everybody's back in the industry, in part because of this continued sense that uh, more and more states are adopting, you know, uh, regimes at the state level, even if the federal government's not acting. I think that's giving confidence to the market. It's also creating new businesses because with each new state comes new entities that are then available to expand on their own or be acquired by other MSOs, et cetera. So I think all those are favorable trends and why we're in a little bit of an uptick on m and one of the things that keeps popping up now, I think the story going forward is will these smaller, um, you know, mom and shop type companies even be able to compete without M&A? Like, will they just have to be on the sell side? Because licensure is so expensive. And like in a place like New Jersey, where I forget what, uh, what the actual rule is now, but it's just, it's so, getting the license is so incredibly difficult. Right. What's, what's, is M&A the only strategy that these folks can resort to just hoping to get scooped up? No, I, I would, I mean, I think M&A, you have to be careful. M&A is, is an option for those that want to take advantage of a liquidity event, or if they, they don't want to pursue alternatives, but there are clearly alternatives and, and those alternatives, you know, are, there's maybe not unlimited options, but there's more than one. So uh, among other things would be looking at an asset light model. You know, so they can go out and if they have a strong brand that's regionally known, um, even within a state, it doesn't have to be between multiple states, you could have somebody who's a very strong brand in a particular region and they can take and through licensing and other arrangements, you know, have a broader geographical footprint without investing in M&A or having to acquire licenses, et cetera. So, you know, that so-called asset light model has been around for a while and it's viable for a brand. Now, if you're talking about a retail operation, that gets more complicated because obviously that requires licensing of physical footprint that is more expensive. So I think, you know, you are correct. It is going to be challenging for a single location, if we go on extremes, a single location dispensary to, you know, become a hundred unit location, hundred uh, location store in a couple of years. You know, that right. would be incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive, given the, the limitations on institutional capital in the space. Hard to imagine that someone's going to get the support to go out and execute on that strategy. But I think there are other niche plays that are available to them. You know, there's been more and more talk about regional compacts, which might be an option for people in that scenario, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we might see like classic retail, we might see stores within stores. So once you get to a regional compact area, if you're a well-known store, let's say you're in, um, you know, I'll say Vail or something. And, you know, you know, somebody sees you and they're from Texas and Texas and Colorado get to a point. I know this is a couple years down the road. They, they have a regional compact. 
then that veil location might be able to take advantage of its kind of niche or premium reputation, go into Dallas or Houston or other areas and be a, a brand or a store within another dispensary in that state if we get to the point of federal legalization or regional compacts. So I think you'll see all sorts of options, mm, but, but it's gonna take a while for the regulations to catch up to support all of them. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, you know, before we get too, too, too lost in time here, I wanna get back to the field guide. Uh, and I want to go in a little bit to who uh, should be looking for it, right? You know, I know obviously this is for buyers, sellers of the M&A transactions, but I feel like, you know, investors could benefit from reading this too. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of benefit to go around. So may, maybe a little bit about, you know, the benefits to the investor audience uh, that this field guide can present, uh, you know, to somebody looking at M&A. Yeah, and I think uh, you know I'll, I'll let Matt speak from the, the high net worth individual that maybe has a portfolio. I think there's tax issues there that I'd love for him to comment on. But I think from a strategic perspective, perspective, uh, any investor in the space would like to have the ability to kind of comment and evaluate on their portfolio company's uh, approach and performance in M&A. And this is certainly something that just a quick read of this information will help them. Many are maybe already knowledge about these issues, but reinforce what they already know or give them a few insights, even if they're a very experienced investor in the space. Um, and then Matt, from a, from a you know, investor's tax, personal tax perspective, you know, I don't know if you want to comment on any issues around that. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the structuring and basically what is their exposure, especially looking at 280E and does that creep up to the investor level? And that's always something of interest, whether it needs to be structured in a particular way to kind of alleviate that, you know, what positions the company is taking, things of that nature. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, what are they investing in and how that factors into various exposures that would hit at that level. Super interesting. So where can they find it? So it's available on our website, uh, mgocpa.com. So uh, click on that site and you'll find the link. Uh, and I can't remember, I think my, my information is up on the screen. I'm not sure how you present this, my apologies. But if not, uh, feel free to reach out to me via LinkedIn or Matt via LinkedIn. And we'll be happy to forward a copy directly if any of the listeners would like to reach out to us directly. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's mgocpa.com. I, you know, I, I hate to cut this conversation short because there's so many complexities that I feel like we can dive into. But I really feel like this is a wonderful start for the audience, you know, and, and really understanding what this offers, what you all do, uh, you know, where the expertise is coming from. So, you know, with that, we really appreciate you guys being with us here today. Again, it's the M&A Field Guide by MGO. Scott, Matt, uh, really appreciate your time. As always, thanks for having us on. It's always great to chat with you. Take care. Yeah, of course. Thanks, thanks guys. You as well. Be well, guys. Awesome. So again, another multi-industry uh, company. Uh, honestly, uh, with one thing I can say, you should seek out MGO and Rosie. They can both help you in different ways. Yeah. And it's amazing. Both PR and M&A are two very complicated issues. Getting as much as possible in 20 minutes is difficult, but I think we did a good job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, we covered about as much as we could in a time yeah. limit there. Let's let's go ahead and bring our last guest over because we're getting in to the nitty gritty uh, uh, with a very very respectable company, Village Farms, uh, Nasdaq listed VFF. Um, they have had a good quarter. Oh, there we go, Michael. Are you there? There you go. I am here. Perfect. Coming in loud and clear. Why are you so far away, Michael? <laughs> Oh, he's I'll, zooming I'll in. Closer. How you guys doing? <laughs> wow. Good, sir. Good, sir. Good to see you again. How you been? I've been good. We've been busy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you guys have uh, had a busy quarter, a busy couple quarters, I should say. We have. And uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, we've, we, our business model stayed the same. So we've never really varied it. It's just uh, maybe getting more recognition now. So. Now, the th absolutely. The theme of the day is uh, companies that have multi-industry, uh, I guess, expertise, right? Uh, so now you guys apply very similar expertise to different industries, but I'd love to hear more about Village Farms if you could just give us a quick high level. So sure. So I mean, we have, uh, we're over 30 years old and uh, Village Farms has always been involved in the intensive ag industry. Uh, so what we're doing in cannabis is what we've always done, except the crop is different. In fact, our roots really started with cut flowers, roses, carnations, and then we migrated on to leaf lettuces. And because of most political decisions that have taken place over the years, i.e. 
The United States transferred the cut flower industry to Colombia for political reasons way back in the day. Uh, we migrated over to vine crops and vegetables and melons, tomatoes, cucumbers. And then when NAFTA occurred, that again was a political decision that wreaked havoc on our business. In the end, it really you know, educated us how to grovel in a low commodity business. Now, what we do is hydroponic growing, which we deem, you know, the most sustainable type of farming you can do. Uh, there's no groundwater contamination. And as an example, growing hydroponically, whatever the crop may be, uh, create, you know, 75% of the world's groundwater contamination is from field growing, leachates of herbicides, pesticides, and so on. So we've always had a great margin and a great consumer base. And in some jurisdictions like Texas, uh, a retail brand. So we've always been in a vertical from day one. We design the greenhouses, build them on the asset, do the production, cultivation, post-harvest fulfillment, and then selling, in our case, to the retailers and users. So really under a CPG umbrella, although produce is a little bit different due to the perishability nature of it. So back in 16, when uh, a political decision was made in Canada, which for the first time was positive, the legalization of medicinal cannabis, we looked at that market. And under Health Canada rules, uh, you cannot grow multiple crops. And with our smallest asset being north of a million square feet in Canada, we passed on the medicinal and uh, recreational use was on the horizon. So we waited. And as that came to fruition, we really spent a lot of time analyzing how we could win in the marketplace. And uh, Health Canada the cards they dealt with were very difficult cards in order to operate in a Canadian landscape and be profitable. An example would be, uh, as a cultivator, you can't use any tools, not even biologicals, predator insects, everything's off limits. So it's almost like growing with one arm and leg tied behind your back. Oh. And for us, you know, since we had the decades of experience growing, you know, we were able to realize right away in order to be successful with our output and yield, you know, how we needed to be proactive in our growing regimen. And luckily, you know, thankfully, we've been successful with that. What, do you, what did thing, you mean that you can't use tools? I, I was uh, Expand on so, that a little bit. So like in cultivation, for an example, if you have insect infestations or mildew, there are products that are available uh, think of any agricultural crop. There are always legal products available to combat either a vector of a virus or a bacteria, mildew, insects. Uh, you can use tools to do that. In a lot of cases, those tools are even biological. Soaps even were outlawed. So they took a very tough regimen, which made being successful as a grower even more difficult. And uh, it was really because cannabis was such a new legal crop. It didn't have the years of going through Health Canada to get certain things registered, all the testing that has to be required to use a chemical or an insecticide or a biological. So that was one, and we realized that uh, it would be very, uh, you know, we'd have to approach it with a different type of growing regimen. The other thing, was Health Canada made it clear, or the government accounted, that we're not going to do anything to stop the illicit trade. And we looked at that, and I remember thinking, you know, the, the analogy to that was at the end of Prohibition, at the end of the 1930s, if the U.S. government didn't have the FBI, Elliot Ness, and get rid of Al Capone and let all the moonshine in Kentucky continue to grow, then the alcohol market would be different today. Well, that's what we're up against. So all illegal operations, for the most part, can continue on. And now there's been a little bit of a reaction by the Canadian government to start to look at that. And I think they took the approach that till the region, till the uh, legal market in Canada and the capacity was enough to fulfill consumer demands, including the retail stores that were required in each of the provincial governments, that they weren't going to do anything to curtail it. So what that did for us in our business model said, if we're going to compete with the illicit trade and we looked at the consumer as the everyday consumer, the casual weekend consumer, that is who we targeted buying from the illicit trade. We looked at our competitors and they sort of led to everyone to believe that, hey, upon legalization, 
uh, you know, if you were a 30 year martini drinker, you would stop drinking martinis and start using cannabis. And we didn't see it that way. So we knew that we would have to have uh, quality, aroma, potency, strains uh, that were going to go to a very difficult consumer, very demanding consumer, very knowledgeable one. So you had to have those attributes, but at the end of the day, you had to offer it at the same price they're buying at. And that was the model we use and deem that low cost producer, no matter how strong your market penetration is or your brand, however you classify it, that in order to compete with the illicit trade, you have to be the low cost producer because the third and final thing Health Canada said is more or less 70 cents of every dollar we take. Mm. And that's what goes on today because when you look at it, typically in a farming operation, you pay agricultural land taxes. We're paying almost industrial level land taxes. Uh, the licensing fee to cultivate and sell cannabis is, ba is based on your revenue, which today is about a half a million a month in licensing fees. Then the Canadian government, it varies somewhat by province, provincial governments take $1 per gram. And then finally, in Canada, you really only have 11 or 12 key provincial governments that are your customers. You have to sell to the provincial governments, and that's exactly how alcohol works in Canada. So really, if five provincial governments represent 80% of the Canadian capacity, you have five customers, and they do all the wholesaling, and they take 30 to 40% margin in order to distribute it to the retail stores. So when you add all that up, you have a small 30 Sent 30% of every dollar, and you have to be profitable. So those are pretty stringent uh, guidelines that they proposed. And uh, we realized that, and we took our time to realize how we would do it. So one of the reasons we uh, took a position rather than building new assets to cultivate existing to, uh, I'm sorry, transform existing assets was not only the lower capital cost, but the fact that you can have a knowledgeable cultivation team, in our case, was on that site-specific site for 20 years, is invaluable. When you have historical climatological data that you can be much pro proactive in your decision because you can look back 20 years of the first week in November and more or less know what the climate is, you can be much more proactive than reactive. So it was a combination of those things, and I think at the end of the day, the fact that we also grow other crops, unlike cannabis, uh, that business, that produce business was able to pay everything we do and operate without ever borrowing money or having a burn rate to support a growing business. And you know, we were successful and I, we were profitable from the first quarter we sold, including the fact that the first three quarters of our production was strictly wholesale till we attained a retail license from Health Canada. And then uh, today we are the number one brand every month since we've been in production in Ontario, mm. the largest provincial government. This year, uh, every single month with the number one brand, uh, we've hit 20% market share actually in April and year to date we're about 13%. So we've also, uh, and that means that our products have resonated so well in their performance to the consumer at the illicit price. And interesting enough, when we launched our first flower product, we came in about 32% under the next lowest LP in price. And some people, you know, perceive that we did that to undercut LPs, and that's not the case. We did it to position our price at the illicit trade. Hmm. So... Health Canada has kind of communicated that once there's enough capacity and retail stores, then they may take a position, especially for tax reasons, of putting more pressure to combat the illicit trade. And it was a very slow rollout for a lot of provincial governments like British Columbia and Ontario and the amount of retail stores. In fact, very so slow in Ontario, there's about 245 stores, and now they're planning 500 by April, 1,000 by next September. So it's starting to get traction, and that will clearly help the distribution of products going forward. So I think, you know, in closing on Canada, we've basically been the only LP that's profitable and consistently profitable, and our margins are in that 30 40% range. 
even at the illicit pricing. And I think that's what differentiates us. And that consistent performance, I think, started to resonate very well with yeah. uh, investors recently. But pure pure Sun Farms, I mean, I, I got to bring this up because it was a recent uh, deal completion that you guys did. Uh, pure Sun Farms delivered a, it's something like its seventh consecutive profitable quarter. And uh, yeah, what's that? Yeah, it's been profitable since the first quarter. It's been in production. Every so, and was that like um, you guys uh, upped your stake in that? The deal was announced in, in September, I believe. Uh, you guys wrapped up... Um, uh, it was close to, um, uh, what was it, an $80 million purchase? It was an $80 million Canadian purchase, $79.9. And uh, so we had started that. And the reason we brought in a joint venture partner when we started, because those were our existing greenhouses and our vision, was that anyone could apply for a license to help Canada. And as I said earlier, we took our time to make sure we had the business model. By the time we were ready to apply for a license, there were 500 uh, applicants in front of us, and it was taking about two years. And we realized, God, the train will leave the station by then, the way it's going in Canada. But if we joined venture with an existing LP, in that case was Emerald Health Therapeutics, who had a license, then when you go for a second site license, you go right to the top of the list. So that's why we brought them as a partner. And then uh, we wound up owning about 58% of it uh, earlier this year. Uh, they wanted to go in another direction, and then we concluded the sale actually the beginning of this month, November, for the remaining shares. So now it's 100% wholly owned subsidiary. Yeah. So has really matching the illicit price, is that the main reason why Pure Sun Farms has been so successful? Uh, or, or, you know, I, I'm assuming the greenhouse aspects and the hydroponics and your expertise has a lot to do with it as well. Uh, it seems to me that there's probably several things going for that, but also I'm never starting a cannabis business in Canada. You have absolutely convinced <laughs> me of that. Um, <laughs> incredible, incredible uh, respect to you all. Um, you know, so I, I'd love to hear more about Pure Sun Farms in terms of how you all are positioning that brand uh, in Ontario and beyond. Well, you know, we did a brand house, so it's a house of brands and the Pure Sun Farms is the brand. And, you know, our view on brands, like brands really at the end of the day in the CPG industry, as everybody knows, you really want to be the brand. But I think it's not going to be that easy to happen. You know, U.S. is different than Canada, and Canada is very restrictive. You cannot brand your product. Every, if you go into it in a retail store, it's all white boxes the same way, just as Canada sells cigarettes. You just have your name in very small letters. Uh, so you really have to brand outside of the point of display purchase, so to speak, and you can't advertise. So you're very restrictive. And we looked at that and said, wow, you know, why would we spend a lot of bucks on marketing? Let the brand speak for itself and it'll be more of a word of mouth. And we're not going to hire, you know, celebrities for millions of dollars when you really can't uh, brand like we're accustomed to in the U.S. Because keep in mind, Village Farms is a U.S. company, even though we're Canadian. We became Canadian in 06 by buying the largest greenhouse company in Canada. So it's a different market. And uh, at the end of the day, being BC grown, because BC Bud was world renowned, and we're really the only major operator in British Columbia. So we were able to incorporate that true value of BC Bud, BC grown into our brand. We have a fun, you know, the best climate in Canada to grow that product. And that coupled with good strains and a delivering a great product, and to your point, at the right price. Because the everyday user, uh, which is the, you know, if you look at the illicit trade at five to six billion dollars, that's what we need to capitalize. You know, maybe eventually more uh, consumers will switch. But we're not going to, you know, that'll happen in time, and it will in the U.S. too. But we, why wouldn't we capitalize and cannibalize the current market from the illicit trade? To do so, price is very important. There's just, you know, consumers, may, he may pay a slight higher price of 5%, 10%, but he's not going to pay, you know, $3 a gram more. He's just, it's not there. And, and that is a big part of our success. But you know, even if it was 10 cents, if you don't have the right product and the right quality and the right strains and potency, that's not going to rule either. So you really need 
the full value proposition to be successful. So could you, just a really quick follow-up there, could you have been so successful without the other side of your business? And I guess what I mean by that is, like, would you have been able to price it so low uh, and been able to sustain uh, without the other side of your business there to help make you profitable with everything else that you have to pay? No, because I think I really believe, look, it's not that we're smarter or better. That's not the case. It's that we've made all the mistakes. So you look at massive industries starting like boom, overnight, everybody jumps in it. All the initial guys who jumped in at the entrepreneurs, you know, they were out of software, banking, law attorneys. Nobody really had the fundamental understanding of one being a CPT product and what it would take and, and the cultural side, the agricultural side to it. Because at the end of the day, we are selling flour. So whether you're harvesting a melon or, you know, a kumquat or flour, it is still, a, there's a culture and an element to it. So we've made mistakes in 30 years in building large scale and how it's done. And we were able to take that know-how and knowledge. And really at the end of the day, it was just another agricultural crop. And I'm not underplaying it because every crop is difficult in, in its own way. And there is a learning curve, but we didn't need the whole learning curve of operating intensive large scale agriculture. And that did make a difference to get there quicker. In time, everybody, if they have the runway and the working capital, they can figure it out. It's just, do you run out of money before you can get profitable? And I think the other thing that people just misinterpreted is that you really needed to be at that level to capture that market. So, you know, if you look at the U.S., it's not that, you know, the U.S. has been going on for a while and it's taken a longer medicinal step in certain places, but... Prior to really getting traction, it was the illicit trade in the U.S. that make up the billions of dollars of business. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. government in general and states will probably be much more aggressive than Canada in curtailing the illicit trade, especially with the tax revenue at stake. But Canadians in general, you know, they uh, just, they just go with the flow a little more. And uh, <laughs> so here we're going to yes, probably get more help. If you look at a state like New Jersey, I don't think they're going to tolerate a lot of illicit operations. (laughs) I believe you. I I believe you there. (laughs) Michael, we unfortunately have to wrap up, and we didn't get to everything, but this has been a lot of fun. I think it's really impressive what you all have done and how you've done it, and I think it's a model uh, to attack a very, very highly regulated uh, area uh, and sector. Um, so props and respect to you guys. And it's been a pleasure, Michael. I'm glad to have you on the show. Good talking to you guys. Thanks. Take care, Michael. You too. Awesome. So Tony, uh, three incredible industry experts from just completely different sides of the industry. Um, yeah, I mean, all of them did it in different ways. And I think all of them had expertise coming into the cannabis space, but, you know, they all learned new things in the cannabis space too, as they went. So fun show. That's the, that's the beauty of this show is we're presenting different corners of the cannabis world. And uh, I can't wait to see what other future episodes will bring. Yeah. I mean, we're going to, we, if we are the go-to destination for cannabis news and these profiles and these spotlights that we shed on these little corners. Uh, so more guests mm-hmm. to come, right, Elliot? Amen. 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 And this is just one of the things that we do. I know Tony and Javier delving into some editorial video content. Uh, We are hosting a small cap event that will host several cannabis companies uh, December 8th and 9th. Uh, Our next cannabis capital conference is February 25th. I'm sure tickets will go up for that soon. Uh, Please like and subscribe. Thank you so much to all of our pre-market prep audience that stayed around. I think I remembered everything. Uh, Sign up for our (laughs) daily cannabis newsletter. And I think that's it. But Tony, it is sincerely always a pleasure to host with you, my Rapunzel swoop friend. When we're going to get together and talk some theater. I want to hear about your adventures as Johnny Cash. Done. Done. We will do it. And and we'll host an after hours podcast on it. And a sing along as well. Yes. Again. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. Uh, Stay healthy. Stay safe. Uh, Have a great Thanksgiving. No cannabis hour next week. Uh, as far as I know, <laughs> I hope that's I'm right. Not yeah, wrong. day off. We all uh, deserve a day off. Yeah, day off next thir- uh, for Thanksgiving, and then we'll see you back the following week. All right, Tony, I'll catch you soon. Take care, Elliot. Bye-bye.
Home. They say it's where the heart is. They also say it's wherever you make it. They don't say it's where you unload your stuff, get tired halfway through unpacking, use some boxes as furniture, realize your oven mitts in a box that doubles as a nightstand, don't want to buy a new nightstand, and use a towel as an oven mitt instead. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on renters and car insurance. Easier than grabbing a piping hot pan with a towel that's a bit too thin and trying to quickly get it to the counter. Ooh, hot, 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 hot. Yeah, I was a heavy drinker, but I didn't recognize what the people closest to me recognized. I ended up laying flatlined on a hospital operating table. Somehow the surgeons brought me back to life. When your life depends on it, there's only one place you can turn. Karen. A recent independent study showed that 94% of Karen patients were still in recovery 90 days post-treatment. Visit caron.org slash real. Karen. Real results. Real care. Real about recovery.